It's great to be with you again on this New Year. So I guess Happy New Year's is in order, right? I said Happy New Year's last week, but I'll say it again this week. So Happy New Year's to you. Um, hopefully, you've kind of started the year off on the right foot and maybe made a couple New Year's resolutions. I hope that you're able to stick with them. You know how those usually go. We stick with New Year's resolutions for, uh, if we're lucky, a few weeks, maybe a few months. But I hope that you're able to make some that um, you'll be able to stick through through their entire year of, of 2020. And I, I hope that there are going to be resolutions that kind of move you forward in the direction that you want to go. And so with that kind of idea in mind, you know, New Year's resolutions, you start to think about things that you want to do. One of the things I want to do, I want to make 2020 for me personally a year just to get healthy. I want to be healthy on just, you know, uh, I want to be healthier spiritually. I want to be healthier emotionally. I want to be healthier physically. Last year, I ran my first 5K. This year, um, I want to do more 5Ks. I never thought that I would ever say such a crazy thing. I want to do more, and, and I hope to even run maybe a 10K this year. So, those kind of things were stirring in my mind, and it took me to the, the series that we're in is just kind of knowing our yeses. So sometimes knowing what to say no to, um, we, we make a list of do's and don'ts kind of things, but sometimes we focus naturally more on the no's, naturally more on the don't do this, and sometimes we leave out then the things that we really ought to be saying yes to, and by default then the things that you say yes to, you kind of exclude the things that you need to say no to. And so last week we talked about saying yes to Christ, how that really, really that is the most foundational, fundamental thing that we need to grasp in this world. And so that's why we care for people is because we want other people to say yes to Christ because uh, God has done something supernaturally in our hearts, I hope, to where He's drawn us to Himself. He saved us, right? Saved us out of condemnation and eternal hell, and He's rescued us into His eternal light, and now we have real life in Jesus Christ. So, that's, that is a great foundation. So, then it's kind of one of those things, so now what? Like, like I've said yes to Jesus, what do I do? One of the favorite things that I do, one of the favorite things I do as a pastor is I teach Grow in His Word. Uh, we're actually finishing our uh, small group of Grow in His Word this Sunday, and so we'll be starting some new ones. So, if you want to learn more about your Bible, um, I love teaching the Bible, love teaching the Bible. And over in a room just kind of over this way, we have some replicas of some of the archaeology that has been discovered over the years because I love using that archaeology to compare against just how, how people, you know, might argue against the Bible. Well, David wasn't really a, a real person or Jesus was a fictional person or maybe he was historical, but, you know, the things that the Bible claims really aren't true. We love to interact with that stuff and grow. That's one of the favorite things I do. Another one of the favorite things I do is I get to take people to Israel. I love taking people to Israel. My first time in Israel, I had one of these just kind of eureka moments, like, oh my goodness, I've read about these things, I've studied these things, I've studied and studied and studied these things, and here they are. And there was just these mind-blowing moments, like, like 
oh, now I get it. Oh, that makes so much sense. And uh, someone once described from reading the Bible in black and white to, to reading it in color, it, their experience of going to Israel. And one of the places uh, I love to take people is in Bethlehem. Uh, we go and we kind of do a couple things in Bethlehem as we're going to stay for about four or five days in Jerusalem. And I always take them to a, uh, an olive wood shop in Bethlehem. For one, um, it's incredible quality stuff. It's great to be able to go and see. But another reason that I'm super biased towards that is the family is the condo family. And the condo family is the actual family that discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so we get to talk with the grandson of the guy who discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's fun for him to tell the family stories of how that all came to be. In case you're not familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were discovered in 47, 48. There was one just actually discovered a couple years ago, believe it or not, um, down around Qumran, down around the Dead Sea. And those were scrolls of the Old Testament and some other things that actually continue to verify that you can actually believe the Bible because the Bible hasn't changed. There's been tons of people that have talked to me over the years, well, maybe the Bible's changed, maybe it has, you know, uh, surely, surely something has gone wrong, somebody's changed a few things here or there, and there's been just tiny, tiny, tiny minor changes, but here we can actually go back to scrolls that are 2,000 years old and older and discover our Bible hasn't changed. It's incredible. There's a word that we use in theology. It's not exclusive to theology, but it's used a lot in theology when we're talking about the Bible, and that uh, we're, when we're talking about the accuracy of the Bible. And the word is veracity. Veracity is just a word that simply means truthful, accurate. It's, it's right on with the facts. You know, and it's fascinating because you've probably heard, just like I've heard, people throw stones at the Bible from a distance. Oh, surely this couldn't have happened. There's no way a man could be swallowed by a giant sea monster. There's no way that a man could have died and come back to life three days later. There's no way that God can miraculously provide and split the, the, uh, the Red Sea. There's no way that these stories in the Bible could actually happen. They, they want to throw stones at the Bible from a distance, without really doing the work of the investigation. And one of the things that you discover, the more that you study the Bible, the more you read the Bible, is the incredible accuracy and the incredible reliability, not just of the historicity of the Bible, the historical accuracy of the Bible, but that it really is God's tool that He has personally watched over Himself. He's using a theological term, superintended. He's taken care of, made sure that His Word has been given to us so that it's what the Holy Spirit uses to draw us to salvation. So now, if the Bible is really those things, if you're first in Christ, what we talked about last week, saying yes to Christ, then we've got to start asking questions of what do we do with the Bible then? 
Because if it is truly the living Word of God, that's what the, that's what the Bible claims about itself. It, it claims that it is living, that it's active, that it's sharper than any double-edged sword, that it's able to pierce down to, the, to bone and marrow, that, that it's able to, when we read it, do something supernaturally that the Holy Spirit uses, that we have this eureka moment and, and we're drawn to Christ. If it's able to do this and more, then we were left with a question. What do I do about it? So I say yes to Christ, and today I, I want to talk about I want to talk about Bible study and prayer. Because if we are in Christ, if God has supernaturally done something on the inside of us, and if God then has given us his living word to us, here, here's what we're saying. I want to have a living relationship, and so what does that look like? How do I how do I fundamentally, how do I practically live out what we call a relationship? Have you ever heard somebody say that, oh, Jesus is having um, and being saved is not a religion, it's a what? Relationship. What is that all about? I mean, how do I have a relationship with someone who is so far away? He's He's, he's not here. Jesus is not here. He's at the right hand of the Father, and the Father is in heaven. And, and, but we have the seal of the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells within us, who, when we read the Bible, illuminates all things so that we can actually understand the Bible. Like, what do I do with this? Well, here's what makes sense. We study it. So, God who loves us so intimately and so personally and corporately as a people whole and as people as individuals, if he loves us this much and he's given us his love letters, 66 of them, what do I do? I read it because I, I love him. Maybe some of you can remember back to the dating days to where um, you were getting letters, whether that be snail mail letters or whether that be emails or whether that be texts. Do you, do you, remember, do you remember having just the butterflies and the sweetness of, oh, I got a letter. Oh, oh, I'm going to cherish what he says, what she says. Oh, she texted me. We, we, we go through this, this place, this phase to where we're like, oh, that person that I want to be so close to, they've given me something that reflects their thoughts, what they think of me, their plans for, for our future, the, the, the dreams that they have. It's what the Bible is for us. The Lord tells us His plans for us. God tells us what He wants from us. And so, here's what we do, is we treasure the Scriptures. When we talk about the Bible today, there's almost a, a degree of um, maybe awe that we have lost in our current 
contemporary American culture. I, I remember even when I was growing up, I, I remember especially some of the, the older senior saints in the church, when they talked about the Bible, they, they rarely used just the term Bible. They would always put in front of it the Holy Bible or the Holy Scriptures. These are things that we cherish, that we that we love. In fact, you can even go and look on some of the covers of Bibles today. They still say the, the Holy Bible or the Holy Scriptures. So, I want to figure, I want to study it, I want to learn it, and then here's what I want to do. I want to do what it says because it's God talking to me. I mean, God has told me, this is what I want for you, Brad. This is how I want you to behave. This is how I want you to think. I don't want you to do this stuff anymore. I want you to do this stuff. Um, th this is my history, Brad. This is my story. This is, this is how the world came to know and understand the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Here's my history. Here's my story. Here's all about me. Here's how ancient I am. And, and Brad, I, I knew you and I loved you when you were knit together in your mother's womb and even before then. I, I called you into this sacred relationship. And so, it inspires me then to want to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, do what it says. Because to be honest, let's be real practical, none of us can live up to those things of our own accord. We need the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and that's why Christ is preeminent. He takes first place. We have to have a living relationship with Him, and it begins with learning what God wants. I remember the, um, my friend who wrote the Grow in the Word studies that I love to teach so much, how that even started, how he even started to write that series was because um, a couple of men came to Christ, they came to, they were saved, and they came to him in his office and said, well, I guess you got to start teaching us the Bible now. And it was out of something so simple that they recognized Christ is first. Now I've got to figure out this whole Christian relationship thing, this whole thing that God has called me to. So the only way that I'm going to learn that is by hearing what God wants me to do. And so there is a priority of Scripture and there's a priority of prayer that we're called to as believers in Jesus Christ. Here's the thing that we can't say. I'm a Christian, but I don't read my Bible, and I don't pray. I, I think that calls into question whether or not Christ has honestly done something. Because there's a holy hunger that comes to us when we come to Christ, right? He does something on the inside of us that it draws us to Him, just like we're drawn to, to personal relationships, right, with, with men, with women, with our spouses. It, it, we're, we're drawn to that. There's a magnetism. When we're in Christ, when, when our, God does something in us and makes us a new creation, we're drawn to Him. We, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, hunger and thirst after righteousness. We begin to have a holy hunger in our stomachs, in our minds, in our hearts that 
we want to do whatever God says. And, you know, these things, the study of Scripture and the priority of prayer, they've been called the twin pillars of our faith. Because we need these things to be routine, to be regular, to be able to have this living relationship. You see, we don't just say, oh, I am a Christian, but I don't have any living relationship with the living Christ. Then you've missed what salvation is all about. Salvation is all about a living relationship. And there's this divine dance that takes place that it calls us to action. It calls us to certain behaviors. And, and so, I, it reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 4.4, and he's really quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, when he says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So, there is a supernatural bread, a supernatural food that we need as believers to have these real relationships with Jesus Christ. Now, just so you don't take my word for it, I want to take you to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. So if you have your Bible, that's where I'm going to be for, for right now. I'm going to throw it up on the screen. That's the cheater version. That's okay. You're more than welcome to use that version. Uh, I have it in the English Standard Version, but I always want to encourage you to, to carry your Bible, to bring your Bible to church, and to, to be able to be directly in it. So if you have your own uh, Holy Scriptures with you, your own copy of the Holy Scriptures, open it up to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. Here's how it reads. You, however, this is the Apostle Paul writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, you, meaning Timothy, however, have followed my, meaning Paul, his teaching. Paul's conduct, my conduct, Paul's aim in life, my aim in life, my faith, Paul's faith, Paul's patience, my love, my steadfastness. Timothy, here's what you've seen. You, you, you've seen how I have lived all these things out. You've seen my persecutions, my sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Um, if you were with us through the Acts of the Apostles series, you know that those were some pretty nasty times in the Apostle Paul's life. There were people that hated him and hated his preaching so much, not because he was a bad preacher, but because rather because he was a good preacher. And so they dogged him everywhere that they went. They talked negative about him. They even stoned him. And they were just mean, mean things. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, you remember those times. So, remember how I had to endure all those things, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord, or from them all, the Lord has rescued me. So, all these persecutions, all these problems, all the hatred, all the accusations, all the persecutions, all the negative things, all, all the physical abuses that I received, the Lord has sustained me through all of these things. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. <laughs> so, just so we don't go too fast over that, but stop for a second and look at that. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, what's the word? Say it. Come on, let's say it. We will be. Yeah. 
Ooh, that's not what I want. I, I would be willing to bet, I'm not a betting man, but I'd be willing to bet that persecution is not what you're like, yes. You know, you know John Wesley, John Wesley was the, the founder of the, of the Methodist church and um, didn't intend to be the founder of the Methodist church, but it turned out that way. Do you know there was uh, a season in his life, multiple days, I think it was three days, maybe four days to where um, he was going around preaching. He was a circuit rider, and so he was, uh, was on a horse and going around preaching in different towns, and he wasn't persecuted for a period of like three or four days, and he was beginning to wonder, Lord, what am I doing wrong? And then somebody started yelling at him and threw a brick at him. He got down off of his horse and praised God that somebody threw a brick at him that he was being persecuted. I thought, you're a strange man, because that is not my normal behavior. R.C. Sproul, recently I was listening, he's gone on to be with the Lord, but I was listening to a teaching of him recently, and he said, you know, the church is the antagonist of the world. And as we live out and proclaim the light of Christ, do you think Satan is going to stand by quietly and just say, ah, let them do whatever they want to do. No, we have a real adversary. And so Paul says, listen, when we want to live a godly life, the Spirit-filled life, there are going to have moments to where it is actually going to create persecution. And praise God, by the way, in that which is really strange. Do you know, Jesus even came and He said, listen, I didn't come so that, you know, everybody could be lauded off. I came and families are going to be divided over me. It's fascinating. That doesn't preach very well in our American culture because today, the more popular, the, the more um, comfortable message is, you know, we just want you to be full of luxury, full of comfort. Everything needs to be a bed of roses. And that preaches really well because, you know, who doesn't want that? That is not the description that we see from the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul warned Timothy, listen, when we follow Christ, you will be persecuted. Evil people and imposters. You know what an imposter is? Someone who pretends to be something, but they're really not. In other words, you hear what he's saying here. There's going to be people who pretend to be Christians, but they're really not Christians, and that's going to actually be full of evil stuff. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Now, that may not feel very comfortable. It may not be very popular to say, but if I really believe that this is the Word of God, like God is talking to us, then this is God warning us through the Apostle Paul, given through the Holy Scriptures, that there are going to be evil and wicked people, and then there's going to be those who look like they're Christians, claim to be Christians, but they're really not Christians, calls them imposters, and they're going to go from being bad to even being worse. And here's what's going to happen. They are going to deceive people, and then the people who do the deceiving, they won't even begin to recognize that they're not even a Christian, and that's why he uses the terminology or the phrase, they're going to be deceived. 
They're going to think that they're really something. They're going to think that they're really a Christian, but they're really a not. And that's what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, people are going to appear before me and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this in your name and this in your name? And they're going to have all this long list. But he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. In other words, you were never really a Christian. You thought you were, but you weren't. And that's precisely what he's warning here. Verse 14, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned, namely the Scriptures, and have firmly believed. In other words, you've learned the Scriptures, you've been taught to firmly believe the Scriptures, and knowing from whom that you have learned it, you've learned it from the Apostle Paul, Apostle of Christ, and ultimately it's been the work of the Spirit. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, and are a, that's the, the Bible, by the way, the, you've been acquainted with the Bible, and are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, when we read and we teach the Bible, it is the Word of God that's able to make someone wise unto salvation. That's why I got to brag on our children's ministry, and every one of you who's involved into it, investing into it, I can't thank you enough because we teach the Bible in children's ministry, and we really, if you start through the children's ministry and, and finish through that, you'll go through the Bible about two and a half times, the whole Bible. And that's just the foundation. That's the starting point. I love it. It's because the more that we teach the Bible, it's the Bible that's really able to make people wise unto salvation. Therefore, he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. The term that's actually used there in, in, in the Greek is it's the breath of God, the ruach. It's the same thing that is used when, when God breathed into the dirt and made Adam. He gives life from the Scriptures. So, so the Scriptures, these holy Scriptures are breathed. It's the breath of God that when He speaks and He breathes that onto us, it gives us life. And here's what these Scriptures are good for. Well, they're profitable for teaching, for reproof. And you get that. In other words, correction. Some people are not in heresy. They're in error. It's not a heretic to believe certain things but they might be in error. And so, how do you help them out of error? You give the Scriptures, because the Scriptures are the things that are powerful. And then for correction, because not only do you want them just to know that information, then you want to correct them and give that course correction to them, and for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman, you can use that phrase there as fairly, so that the person, the man or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what the Bible is. That and, by the way, so much more. Now, if the Bible is really all that, I want to say yes to the Bible. Because here's what ends up happening. I'm going to give you a short list here, a short list. It may look like a long list, but it's the short list, I promise you. The Bible reveals the will of God. I've, I've, heard, I've heard people before say, you know what, I'm just really pursuing what the will of God is. So here are the two questions I ask them. Okay, 
So have you read the Scriptures? No, haven't been reading the Scriptures. Well, read the Scriptures because God speaks through the Scriptures. So if you want to learn the will of God, you've got to read the, the, the Word of God. And have you prayed? By the way, your prayers are informed from the Scriptures. There's times that we blindly pray. Now, what do I mean by that? We blindly pray in that, well, I'm praying, but I never read the Word. Well, how can you know what to pray and how to pray if you've never learned from the Word how and what to pray? Make sense? We're going to get there yet this morning. The Bible reveals the will of God. It also reveals the ways of God. The, how does God operate? Once I heard, some, uh, I had a lady who came up to me years and years ago. I was working with a different church, and she said, Brad, God told me to divorce my husband. And I said, okay, so let's, let's talk about this. And, and I said, so why do you think that God told you that, um, to divorce your husband? He's lazy. I said, and? God will not contradict His Word, right? So, God won't give us a revelation, information that contradicts what He has already given us. And so, we have to do the work of understanding the will of God and the ways of God, and also it, the Bible reveals the character of God, who God really is. You know, it's fascinating. We live in such um, a culture. Or there's, a, there's this American culture, the pop American culture, maybe use this term this way, that, that today is, oh, God is love, God is love, God is love, God is love, and God is love. Oh, he, absolutely, He is love, but God is holy, God is just, and He is just as much holy as He is love. He is just as much just as He is love. His character is equal. But here's what we want to say. Well, that's not very loving. Well, <laughs> maybe not. But do you know that there's other passages to speak to those kind of behaviors? And what we, what we unintentionally do is we excuse poor behavior in the name of love. And that isn't love at all. In fact, the most loving thing that we can do is telling somebody sometimes the most difficult thing. Right? If... If someone that you know is completely against God and they're headed to hell, do you just say, you know, I don't want to offend them. I want to love them. I, I just don't want them to be mad at me. That's not love, right? Because the most loving thing that we can do is to say, I want you to know about heaven. I, I want you to know that that action, that that behavior is not taking you down the path that leads to a deeper relationship with God. And so, the Bible reveals the character of God. It gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. 2 Peter 1.3 is one of those passages that helps us understand that when we read the Bible, it equips us. It equips us to, to live a life that is going to be holy. I was talking with a pastor just this week, and he was just talking about some of his own personal frustrations about how the idea of holiness at times seems to be lost. And he was talking about how he wants to just put that sign. Do you remember the sign that was in some of the older churches, holiness unto the Lord? Like, there's just a call to holiness 
that we Christians, that we possess. And, and there's almost a flippancy that happens that if, if you're not the hip or the cool pastor that swears, then you're probably not the effective pastor. You think I'm joking. Those ideas are just out there, and I'm like, you know, that just doesn't, that doesn't resonate with my Christian identity. The Bible is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. So, so the Bible speaks to us personally. It speaks to us corporately. By the way, the Bible speaks to us on an individual level. That's why we can read the Bible individually and get something out of it. And that's why as the body of Christ, that's that corporate term, right? We read it together and we collectively get something out of it together. Because not only does God speak to us as individual Christians, but He speaks to the church, to the body of Christ as a whole. And so we as the body of Christ are also to operate according to particular behaviors, the Bible does reveal right behavior. Here's what I'm supposed to do. Here's what I'm not supposed to do. The Bible gives me discernment. So in situations that it just feels like I, I need wisdom, you know what the Bible says? Ask of Christ and He'll give it to you generously and without finding fault. He's not going to say, oh, here you are asking again. The, the Bible, as I read through it, I can get wiser Crazy, right? And who among us doesn't need a little bit more wisdom to be able to navigate the ebbs and the flows of life that we experience every day? And I don't care whether you're young or old. We all need wisdom for the different phases and different experiences that we have in life. The Bible is the Spirit's tool to redeem to reform men. How, how can they believe, the Bible says, if, they've ha if they have not heard? We, we need to proclaim the Word of God because it's what, what the Spirit uses to convict men and women of sin and to draw them to Himself. And so it redeems people and it reforms people. You don't have to be in misery your whole life, right? That's where the reformation of the Spirit comes in. It's fascinating. You know, some of the most inspiring people to me are people who go through the most miserable circumstances and in the midst of it are praising Jesus. Like, to me, that's just like, wow. Look at you go. You're my heroes, because in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the tragedy, you're allowing God to be glorified. Man, that's, that's exciting. And so we devote ourselves to study the Bible not only for information, but for transformation. That's why we say teach, train, and what? transform. And let's just say that together just to make sure we get that. So teach, train, transform. Teach the Word of God, train in righteousness, and that will transform us, not because of we've done anything, but because the Spirit has done something on the inside of us. So if I truly hunger and truly thirst after righteousness, it's because the Spirit of God, He's made me a new creation. 
I have the holy hunger for the Scriptures. I, I, want, I want to know more about Him because He's my Savior. He's my Lord. He's the one who redeemed me out of my own brokenness and my own wretchedness. We've talked about that, right? And so, we study the Scriptures. Now, I put prayer after. I put prayer after the study of the Scriptures because I used to pray with my eyes closed and my Bible closed. Now, I pray with my eyes open and my Bible open. I've, I've learned that really what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about prayer is prayer comes with intimacy, comes with information, but it has to be shaped through truth. Because we can pray all sorts of things, can't we? But they're the wrong things to pray for and the wrong way to pray. Lord, I want a Lamborghini, good, bad. I don't know why I would want a Lamborghini. I can't even take that out in the field, right? Lord, I, I, I want a four-wheel drive truck. You know, and, and there might be phases or times to where that's the, the right thing to pray because maybe you're a missionary and you know the, that four-wheel drive truck is going to be an instrument that you're going to be able to utilize so, so that you can go and do missionary work and the middle of Africa, right? And we've heard missionary stories of how they're praying for a vehicle, God provides a vehicle, amen. But for uh, most of us Americans, sometimes those prayers are not the right prayer. How do I know what to pray? It's got to be shaped by the Word. I'm going to be really honest, not that I am ever not, but when I see on Facebook these posts about, I pray that this year is a year filled full of wealth, prosperity, and great things. It just kind of makes me want to go, <clears throat> yeah, doesn't that sound nice? I, I mean, it sounds nice, right? And I want the best for my friends. I want the best for everybody that I know, right? I, I want the best for you. Wouldn't it be great? But what if God has a different plan? Say that very phrase to Job. Job, the reason that you're suffering, doesn't that sound like his wife? Why don't you just curse God and die? Or his friends who said, Job, the reason that you're going through all this kind of stuff is because you had to do something wrong. You, you see, how do we really know what to pray? That's going to be shaped from the Scriptures, Something fascinating that's happening, has been happening, is the American populace as a whole dramatically knows their Bible less. Not only the American populace, but Christians know their Bible less. By the way, I personally think that that feeds into Christians being deceived today by every wind and wave of doctrine, and it tosses people all about, and it gets people all confused. And the reason that there's so much confusion is because we don't know our Scriptures. Now, that might seem condemning, but it's, it's, I want it to be an encouragement for us to know our Scriptures. That's why I love to teach Grow. I, I want people to know the Bible. That's why we, we commit so much time on Sundays to teaching the Scriptures 
25% less people in a single generation are even occasional readers of the Bible. 700 people quit reading the Bible every day. No meaningful relationship with the Bible. Two out of three Americans by the year 2040 if the trend that we're currently on continues. That means one-third of Americans will have any kind of familiarity with the Bible if this trend continues. You can go through and read the rest of these stats. I posted this image on our, on our Facebook page. Like it, share it, let people know all about it because it's a dangerous trend. Because what's going to happen, the less people know the Bible the lower their intimacy with God will be. Guarantee it. You see, sometimes, here's what happens. We, we read the Bible to search out our own personal comfort. And I get it. Because there are those moments when we desperately need comfort. I have good friends who have talked me off of a ledge many times. We, we need someone to, God to just comfort us. We need good friends to comfort us. But we read the Bible and search and study the Scriptures not merely for comfort, to make ourselves feel better about whatever current struggle we are, but to deepen our intimacy with the God who knows us. Intimacy with God is so much more than just biblical knowledge. And so we have the gift of prayer. Listen, I don't need a priest to talk with my Jesus. The whole book of Hebrews, by the way, is dedicated to that topic. I don't, I don't need someone to intercede on my behalf. I have a great high priest, and his name is Jesus. And when that curtain temple was torn, or when the, the temple, or the curtain in the temple was torn, see if I can get that out. That it's a, it's a great picture that I now have direct access. That's why I pray in the name of Jesus. Have you ever wondered, like, when you, when you finish praying, you say, in Jesus' name, amen. Why we speak, why we pray in the name of Jesus is because he is our great high priest. He is our intercessor. And, and, and so when I deepen my knowledge of the Scriptures and deepen my intimacy with God through prayer, something really happens. Daniel Henderson, I've talked a lot about the book Transforming Prayer. We have some copies out there. In case you haven't heard me talk about it, best prayer book I have ever read on the topic of prayer. And um, we just want to get that in your hands. And so, if you haven't heard me talk about it, if you'd like to learn more about that book, come see me after the service. I'd be more than happy to talk with you a long time about that. He talks about seeking the face of God before we seek the hands of God. You see, a lot of times, here's what we do. We start off our prayers with our prayer requests. And that's natural. But here's... Here's what we're learning, and here's what Jesus models in the Lord's Prayer. Start out with saying, God, you're so amazing. Start out with this awe. Start out with, God, you're great, and I'm just so needy. So you don't start out with prayer requests. You seek the face of God before you seek the hands of God. 
And so here's what happens then. The practical application of that is the Bible guides me in my intimacy. Because the Bible, as I read the Bible, I get to pray the Scriptures. God, I see here that you want me to be holy. God, I see here that you don't want this behavior for my life. Help me to, to be that. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, Jesus is, um, Jesus is talking about how not to pray. He was battling the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, here's what they would do. They would go on street corners, and there were certain times of prayer, and no matter where they were at, they would stop and they would pray. And the Pharisees, what they would do is that they would actually stop, and they would pray really loudly, and here's what people would do. Oh, they're so spiritual. They're just so wonderful, and they would play, pray long prayers, and they would be just, people would be, oh, Wow, and Jesus says, that stuff makes me puke. That is dry religion. They worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so here's what he says in Matthew chapter 6. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, the people who pretend that they're something but really aren't. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners. He's speaking primarily about the Pharisees there. That they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, They've received their reward. What's their reward? Oh, people are just adoring them, but they're getting what they want. They want people's accolades. And Jesus says they've got their reward in full. Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room. Now, the Greek word here is tamion, and the King James is this beautiful picture of this. It talks about your own prayer closet. And we say, what in the world are you talking about? Go into your closet. Who goes into their closet? But you got to understand the culture of the 1600s to understand what is being said. You see, in the king's and the queen's palaces, if you are going to have a very formal meeting, a, a meeting where you really just sat down with the king or the queen and you had just a heart-to-heart -heart conversation, you would meet in a place that they called their closet. And it was a big room that had chairs in it and they had all sorts of things. And so here's what Jesus is saying. You don't need to pray so that you can be seen by everybody. They've got their reward in full. Here's what you need to do. You need to focus not on everybody seeing you. You need to focus on who you're trying to talk with. So go and close the doors. By the way, I love this. I love teaching this. Because here we want to say it's talking to you or me personally. But that's not what the Greek says. It's you, plural. Here's what he's really saying. When all y'all pray, don't be like them hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. But I'd say to all y'all, they have received their reward. But when all y'all pray, go into all y'all's room. In other words, he's talking about what? The church coming together and doing what? Praying. I've mentioned it before how I feel like, you know, the, the traditional pastoral prayer is kind of really hijacked. What 
has been intended all along for the church to corporately pray. And so that's why we've been starting these practices, and we're going to continue them even more into 2020, of having congregational prayer times. Because there is something about that that's just flat out biblical. When all y'all get together on Sundays, all y'all pray. Pray together. And so, here's what he says. Go in, shut the door, pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, you don't need to be thinking about what other people are thinking of you. Just pray. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Uh, Have you ever heard somebody say, but I just don't know what to say? You're talking to God. You're talking to the Creator, and I know that that's a big thing, but I know that we're all intelligent people, and we can have great conversations with people. We don't, we don't need to stumble over our words. Use whatever words you would use and have an honest conversation with Him because your Father in heaven says, don't be like those hypocrites, for the Father knows what you need before you even need it. Matthew 6 gives us not only the content, but the context of how to pray. In other words, we pray together even when we get together as the church. Great, good, godly stuff. The content is known because the teaching is known. Well, how do we get the teaching? From the Bible. That's how we know how to pray. In the Bible then shapes everything that we do. And then what you end up seeing is you see in Matthew 6, it gives us content, it gives us the context, and you see in Acts chapter 2, the early church, here's what they do. They devote themselves to prayer, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, that's communion, and praying. The church was birthed after a 10-day prayer meeting. That's what happens on Pentecost. They go up into this chamber, to this room, and they pray, and they wait, and God sends the Holy Spirit. Let me kind of just give some things to, to wrap up here. Don't miss this. Foundation is saying yes to Christ. Foundation is, that's the foundation, but it doesn't end there. It it is a living relationship that we're saying yes to, and so the fuel to that living relationship comes through our study of the Bible. And then as I learn what God wants, I pray about that. God, I see that you don't want me to to be like the pagans, so what does that mean? God, I see that you don't want me to be about lust, so what does that mean? God, I see that you don't want me to be all about money, so what does that mean? God, I see that you want me to, to not live in immorality, so what does that mean? God, I see that you don't want this, so what, what does that mean? And we pray about those things, and now what happens is my relationship with Christ gets deeper and deeper and do you remember the old hymn that the longer I serve him, the what? Sweeter he grows. How does that happen? Because my intimacy with God deepens so, so much. So there we go. 
we're saying yes to Christ, yes to Bible study and prayer. And, and next time, I'm just giving you a forewarning for next time that we're in, we're going to be talking about saying yes to church, saying yes to, to the assembly of the saints on a routine, regular basis. Why is that important? Saying yes to small groups, smaller groups within the larger group, and also saying yes to serving. Why are those things so important? Now, I'm just going to throw it out there. That sermon might get a little bit edgy. And, and I'm just letting you know ahead of time that it may step on a little bit of toes, including my own. And so, for whatever it's worth, you can watch it online if you would uh, rather not be here, but I'd rather that you be here because gathering together as the people of God for the worship of God, there's something that God just loves about that. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for how it teaches us um, what we need to do. So we know that you just don't want us to have our get-out-of-hell-free card, but you want us to be in a living and real relationship with you. And so I thank you for being the God of relationships, the God who loves us, the God who is full of abundant grace, mercy, and kindness, and abounding love, the God who... In the midst of our mire, you've pulled us out. So we worship you. Help us to know more of who you really are. And as we worship you through our study of the word, through prayer, I pray that our intimacy grows. It's filled just full of rich reality. Thank you. Thank you for calling us, for making us your own people. Help us to to do what we need to do well so that you will gain great glory. Father, as we do that, I pray that you would draw other people to yourself. Help us to be about your business here on earth. So I pray that we as a congregation are aware of our neighbors and our friends and our relatives, those who, uh, they're lost. Teach us to have a burden for that. Convict us to pray for them regularly, to care for them in the name of Christ. And Lord, in doing that, will you do something miraculous? Can we witness a miracle of someone coming to know you personally? Thank you. Thank you for being the God of miracles. We worship you in the name of Jesus.